When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear me. I was supposed to have a piss play date tonight, but my date canceled just now, and I just drank like a gallon of water. That and more, but first, no one really has time to go to the post office. We're all too busy. But Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. You simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail's ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in the mailbox. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. No wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use stamps.com. And right now, risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage. And, and there's Donkey. Donkey. He uses stamps.com and he loves it. And right now, risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. <laughs> I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Tommy Seabock behind me now with a song called Sex Bubbles. <laughs> or, no, wait a minute. <laughs> bubble sex. Bubble. There's a lot of bubbles on this episode, tiny ones and otherwise. We're calling this week's episode daddy issues because there's two stories about real fathers and then there's one story about me you know daddy is the kind of thing you you would call a gay man with one foot in the grave (laughs) but thankfully i am not 
having children. I am content to spend the rest of my days attempting, attempting to, to raise myself. Now, in a little bit, we are going to hear an extraordinary story that was told by a first-time storyteller at our recent show in Cleveland, Rick Dean, who you can find on Twitter at RDG3PO. But before that, a little something from me. This is a story that I told at our New York City show at Caveat in January. This had just happened, and so I was just kind of trying something out here by sharing this for the first time and i just loved the energy of the audience that night so let's throw it out there (laughs) here i am at risk live in new york city with a story we call ginger bear and the moviegoers knee I'll tell you one thing. The show is almost 10 years old now. (laughs) And one of the things that I've been realizing is kind of weird about having done the show that long is that I find myself kind of worrying about maintaining the reputation that I have created for myself through the show over the years. For example... In 2009, when I started the show, I wanted all the listeners to know that I am one kinky motherfucker. I would tell story after story about how if there's an orgy to be had, I'm going to be there. If there's some bizarre new kink that came around, I am going to try it as long as it's legal. But, Next month, I turn 49, okay? And one of the things I'm noticing that is different now than I was in 2009 when I started the show is that a lot more of my income these days goes to doctor visits. I was at a a physical therapist a few months ago, and the first thing I noticed is, oh, great, he's half my age. And I said to him, listen, why does my knee hurt when I'm sitting and just watching a movie in a movie theater? And he said, oh, Well, I'll tell you, men around your age, you know, once you get to be around 50, a lot of guys, they experience what we call moviegoers knee. I was like, like, wait a minute, what the fuck? That's literally what it's called? What, What is this? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, being in a seated position can be a little too strenuous for a guy your age. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my God, what the fuck is happening to me? So I start taking yoga classes to kind of counter this 
apparent falling apart that I'm doing. And I quickly learn in yoga classes that I have no balance whatsoever. I am the guy trying to keep from falling apart, but in yoga classes is always falling down. I had to go from yoga class to yoga class to yoga class because I would quit a class out of embarrassment because I can guarantee you there is going to be a moment in any goddamn yoga class where that instructor is going to burst out into an uncontrollable fit of laughter at me. So, a few weeks ago, I'm on vacation in one of the most sexual cities in the world, Bangkok, Thailand. And I was so excited. When I got to Bangkok, I just said, oh my God, one of the first places I'm going to go is this place that's called Babylon, this gay sex club. I got there and I'm pretty convinced that it's the largest gay sex club in the world. And the reason I say that is because it's the largest gay sex club I've ever been in. And I have a lot of empirical research in my background. <laughs> But the thing of it was, it's the kind of place where everyone is naked except for a towel. So I show up and and I'm in the locker room and this Japanese guy walks up to me and he says, oh, you're a ginger bear. And I was so thrilled. I was like, yes, I am. Let me tell you something. Like, a lot of people do not like to be fetishized for the type of person they are, especially if the type of person they are tends to be fetishized by a lot of people. But if you see a ginger bear and you'd like to let him know that you like his type, I can guarantee you, we kind of like hearing that once every 20 years. <laughs> So I was like, oh my God, I'm so happy to meet you. And he's like, well, I'm leaving, actually. Of course, my one admirer is already out the door. But he did give me the lay of the land. He said, here's how it works. There's a giant foam party in the central dance floor area of the club. And then out of that, there's all these snaking hallways and stairwells that go to all the other parts of the facility. There's a restaurant, there's a pool, a sauna, a massage parlor, all this stuff. But the important part is those snaking hallways, right? Those snaking hallways are where there's all the little closet-sized rooms. So those are the dark hallways where guys cruise one another in their towels and then go into the little rooms and have sex. So, okay, all right. He says, have fun. And then he was gone. And I know the whole lay of the land. Well, I step out onto this balcony right out of the locker room. And I'm looking at this giant foam party <laughs> happening in this central dance club part now here's the thing if you have you ever heard of these things or been to one of these things what it is is it's a big dance club and they have these like mechanical buckets up in the ceiling and, and they're all kind of just pooping out uh bubbles like kind of like if you forgot to close the top of the washing machine and they're just you know filling the whole place with more and more of this bubbly phone so everyone can take their, you know, uh, their towels off and just dance because they're all up to their eyeballs in foam. I'm looking down at this, and for the first time ever in a sex club, I found myself saying to myself, 
Oh, fuck. I feel too old for that. <laughs> like, it just looked like fucking chaos down there. <laughs> so I, I, I walk to another little hallway and I find, oh, my God, there's a jazz lounge in here. I'm telling you, this is the most... <laughs> insane place I've ever there was a ho, it was also a hotel I don't understand it but I got to this jazz lounge and there there are men from all over the world in towels but listening to jazz and having drinks and I sat down I was like okay this is my speed and I, I met a guy from China and a guy from Wales and a guy from Sweden and I started having drinks and I even started having you know someone's marijuana and I thought wait a minute what the fuck like, in America, you can't serve alcohol at a sex club, much less marijuana. In America, at a sex club, the fire department and the police department raid the place on a weekly basis. So they take security precautions up the wazoo, you know? I was learning that Bangkok, not so much. So after a little while of, you know, getting kind of warmed up with the drinks in the pot, I was like, all right, it's time for the main event. Let's try this cruising in these dark hallways out. So I start to walk up one of these flights of stairs and I immediately notice, what the fuck? The foam is creeping up the stairs out of the dance club into the entire rest of this gargantuan facility. So I'm like, oh, this doesn't seem good. And I'm walking up these stairs and of course getting a little winded because I'm me and they're stairs. <laughs> and I get to the top of this hallway and I realize, oh my gosh, everyone has tracked all this soapy foam everywhere. So all of these super dark cruisy hallways are like a slip and slide. <laughs> Like, I'm the guy that's always falling down, right? And I'm in bare feet. I've been diagnosed as being, you know, a little too fragile for seated movie viewing. <laughs> and, and everyone else, everyone else is puffing out their chest and strutting around, peacocking, almost like they're like, yeah, I'm not falling down. <laughs> So I'm like, oh my God, I'm clinging to the walls. And listen, in a cruising environment, in a male cruising environment, it's traditional that there is no fucking talking, right? It's all in the eyes and it's very serious, right? Now, I'm usually okay about that. <laughs> I'm a very talkative person, but I usually know to keep it shut, but not, not tonight. I was asking random guys, Aren't there handrails here? Like, isn't it too dark for there to be a stairwell going down right there? I, I actually approached this like beautiful, strong young man in front of me. I was like, I'm so sorry. Can I hold onto your shoulder while I turn this corner? Everyone's looking at me like, dude, did you forget your fucking walker? <laughs> so I was like, oh my God, yeah, maybe I am in a new phase in my life where maybe sex clubs are too fucking much for me nowadays. <laughs> so I gave up. I just gave, I was like, oh, let's just cut our losses and go home. But 
But as I exited the club, I realized that the drinks and the pot and the craziness in there had me in a tizzy. And I was like, I am not going to be able to handle figuring out the Bangkok subway system for getting home from this place tonight. But luckily, there's a lot of taxi drivers, a lot of cab drivers out there just waiting by their cars right outside the club. So I wave and a guy's like, I got you, sir. And I'm like, oh, my God. Okay, the evening is done. Now I can go to comfort and safety, riding back to my hotel in this cab. And that is when he hands me a helmet. (laughs) None of those cars were his. He had a little motorcycle. And here's the thing. I have never been on a motorized vehicle with two wheels. I've never done that before, but over the years, I've just like trained myself to take risks because of this podcast and just say yes to things. So I was like, well, I guess this is happening now. So I get on the back of this vehicle and I immediately realize, oh my gosh, this Thai guy is so much smaller than me. Like the ginger bear was like four fifths of the weight on this bike. And as I'm putting this together, like, oh, wait, this is a little lopsided here. We are zooming off into the Bangkok traffic, right? We are swerving and careening in between cars, cutting in front of other motorcycles. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, if I, I'm the guy who falls down all the time. If I like have a muscle spasm or I don't know, sneeze, we are going straight into an oncoming bus. (laughs) So eventually I started thinking, my God, Kevin, this might be it. (laughs) These might be your final moments. But then I actually did think, well, it's been a full life. (laughs) You know? I mean, maybe the moviegoer's knee was the first sign that, you know, I've had my time. And then I just started to relax after thinking that, to just totally chill out and realize, my God, this city is amazing zooming past me. And then my driver started to get like happy and like showing me stuff and making jokes and telling little stories. And I mean, I was still hanging on to him for dear fucking life, but we were laughing together and enjoying it. And I was realizing, oh my God, everything I'm looking at is so fascinating and new and beautiful. And it had just rained, making things a little more dangerous even, but it also made all the multicolor surfaces of the city just shine and for a while there I was just in awe and I thought to myself holy cow the highlight of this night is not the batshit time that I had in the sex club but this beautiful ride home And so he got to my hotel, and I got off the bike, took off my helmet, and I I gave him a gargantuan tip, uh, partly because I was grateful and partly because I'm very bad at math. (laughs) Everyone got very big tips the whole time. 
But I'm, I'm riding the elevator up to my hotel room when my phone bings. And it's this Cambodian guy that I've known for a while. He said, oh, my God, Kevin, I saw on Facebook that you're in Bangkok. I'm visiting Bangkok right now, too. And we're staying in the exact same neighborhood. I was like, holy shit, that's wonderful. He said, yeah. And I was supposed to have a piss play date tonight. Uh... But my date canceled just now, and I just drank like a gallon of water. He said, can I come over and just use you as my urinal? And I said, you know what? In the safety and comfort of this hotel room, you sure can, buddy. I said, but I might wear knee pads. When you come over, be sure and ask me all about my moviegoer's knee. <laughs> Thank you very much. onto your shoulder while I turn this corner? Make me one all over sliding away Well, the feeling that I'm gonna love you till the end So I'm 15 years old, and my mom's picking me up from this function, and I could tell when I get into the car that she's been sobbing. That's not new to me. She says to me, Ricky, how would you feel if we moved out of the house? I said, Mom, that would be perfect. When can we do this? And she says, well, you don't understand. We'd probably have to move into low-income housing, maybe go into the projects. Mom, I don't care where we live. Where can we go? When can we do this? Well, I can't really provide for you like your dad does. We'd have to go on to welfare. I couldn't buy you the things that your dad buys for you. My mom, I don't care about that stuff. Let's, let's just go. We need to go where we could be happy and we could be safe. And as we drive around town looking for a place to live, I'm trying to talk my mom into doing this, and, and I could see she's losing hope, and we end up going back to the house where my dad and my brothers lived. So my dad, he's not super tall, he's kind of short, he's stocky, he's got big thick legs, broad shoulders, big strong arms, and he's always lived by the motto, if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. So I spent a lot of time growing up chopping wood with him to heat the house or to pull weeds out of the garden or working on the cars because we couldn't afford to have someone fix them for us. My dad had this amazing work ethic that outshined his family ethic by far, he was an alcoholic, and he was also abusive, both verbally and physically. One of my dad's favorite things to do is to uh, listen to loud music and sing along and, and uh, get drunk and get high. And we knew when he would get into one of these modes, it would be best to just avoid them altogether. One time in particular, I got a little bit too close to him, and as I walk by, he reaches out and grabs me and pulls me onto his lap. He says, I got you, and he starts fondling my tits. 
And he says, oh, these are some nice tits you're growing, Ricky. You're turning into a real pretty girl. And I'm saying, stop it, Dad. Just leave me alone. And I'm struggling to get off of his lap, and he's laughing at me, and I could smell the beer and the weed on his breath. And I don't think he was so much trying to molest me as he was trying to shame me into being such a fat little kid. And all I knew for sure was that it made me feel disgusting, and I never wanted to feel that way anymore. But it continued over and over and over growing up. And it got to the point where I used to fantasize about ways to get him out of our life, whether we called the cops or children and youth services or just ran away. And I remember one night in particular after school, we would go out behind the house and hunt. And I'm sitting in my tree stand. And on this white plastic bucket, the cold is just radiating up through my body. The gloves that I'm wearing is doing nothing to keep my hands from shivering. And as the light's fading, and I'm looking out into the general direction where I know my dad's sitting, it's getting harder and harder to tell what might be a dad or what might be a deer. And I put the gun up to my shoulder, and I peer down through the scope. And sure enough, I could see little spots of brown moving in between the trees. And I think how easy it would be if a hunting accident were to occur. But then I also think if I had missed, or worse yet, if I had just injured him, how much worse life would be for us. My last night in that house as a young adult, I had a routine where I would finish up my closing shift at McDonald's and I would come home late at night and I would gather up the things that I needed to be gone for the weekend and not put up with my parents. As I pull into the driveway, I cut the engine so that they can't hear the car and I creep in through that side door that we always go in through very slowly. The whole house is dark. I can make my way through the living room to the light shining off of the clock on the VCR. And as I turn to go down the hallway, I hear behind me, where do you think you're going, Ricky? And I turn around, it's my dad, he's been waiting for me. Uh, Dad, I just got home, I'm going to bed. That's bullshit, I know what you're doing. You're going to be gone all weekend, well, I got news for you. And I turn to walk away from him because I didn't want to put up with that. And he's so mad at me that he grabs me by my arm and he yanks to turn me toward him. And I can feel my shoulder popping out of its socket. And this white hot pain just shoots through my shoulders, turns into rage. And I turn and I swing at him with my free hand. I miss. (laughs) And that jeering look on his face turns to one of black hatred. He wants to kill me. He grabs me by both of his hands and he goes to throw me on the ground, but I'm ready for him at this point. And I take him onto the ground with me. We start to struggle and we're hitting and we're pulling at each other's clothes. And I'm not as strong as my dad, I know this, but he's drunk and I could find my escape. I get up off the floor and I run for the door. And as I'm getting into the car, I can hear him screaming at me from the door of the house. Don't you ever come back here if you know what's good for you. Well, I know that's not going to work for me as I'm driving down the road. All of my shit's in that house. So I devise this plan to go to the police station and tell them what's going on. This is not the first time my dad's been on their radar, so they agree to escort me back to the house to get my stuff. And as I'm pulling into the driveway, of course, my dad's waiting for me. He comes out of that side door, and he's got a Remington 12-gauge with him. He's ready to shoot me. And I stop the car, and I look at my rearview mirror and make sure that my escort's with me. And as I get out, the police get out too. My dad kind of tucks that gun behind his back and starts backing up towards the house. The police get out of the car, they do their thing, they say, what seems to be the problem? And my dad takes this opportunity to tell them what a giant piece of shit I was, and I didn't know anything in that house, and I was trespassing. By this time, I'm so scared, I'm so shaken, that I'm, I'm just grabbing whatever I can and throwing it into this tattered brown box so I could toss it in the back of my car and leave, knowing that I would never see that place for a while. And I didn't. It was several years before I talked to any of my family again. 
About 15 years later, I'm married. I have two kids. They're seven and eight at that time. We had since kind of made an unspoken truce between me and my dad. And we had fallen onto some real hard financial times. And I think as a sort of olive branch, my dad asked if we wanted to move back in and uh, help us get back on my feet. And I think after that time, man, my dad had to have mellowed out. You know, what could be the harm? We could really get shit fixed up. So we moved back into the house, and it became quickly apparent that that wasn't the case. You see, my dad was also a recreational drug user, and he had contracted a case of hepatitis. And the medication that they gave him for the hepatitis made him violent. So they gave him another medication that would depress him. So it made for some like weird mood swings. I remember one afternoon sitting on the couch with my wife, and uh, my dad comes bounding in from the kitchen. He's got this massive grin on his face. He says, Ricky, I just dropped a hit of acid. How about you get your boys and we take a four-wheeler ride? And my wife turns, and she grabs my leg, and she's got this panic look in her face, and she's telegraphing to me, Ricky, you got to do something about this. And I say to my dad, uh, Dad, that sounds like fun, but actually, Gina's got to take the boys and go somewhere. How about I go for a four-wheeler ride with you? And he says, oh, okay, that works. The last thing I wanted to do is spend time with my dad, but even more than that, I did not want my kids to see that reckless state that my dad was in. Now, the last straw for us staying in that house was uh, one evening I was working late, and my wife calls me up. Again, she's panicked. She says, Ricky, your dad just screamed at the kids for not eating their fish dinner. I say, well, of course he did, you know, and I start to think about all the family dinners we had on the house. You know, food would end up on the floor or crammed into our face, or we'd get sent up to bed or backhanded. That's just what happened if you didn't eat the dinner that was put before you. And Gina says, I don't care. He terrified me. He terrified the kids. I scooped him up and yelled at him, you don't talk to my kids that way. And I was stunned for a second when I remembered that my kids are being raised in the same environment that I was. What was normal for me growing up should not be normal for anybody. And I said, Gina, you're right. We have to go. We got to find a new place to live. We did. We found the perfect house. It ended up being in the town that my wife grew up in. We're living in that house right now. It's, the rent was perfect, more than enough room for all of us, and we made plans to get out. What threw a monkey wrench in the whole thing was my mom found out that my dad was having yet another affair. Who the fuck would sleep with my dad? I don't know. He was such a surly old fucking bastard, but he was doing it. My mom... She's smaller. She's not frail, but she's weaker. Definitely weaker than my dad. Definitely, I could beat her up in a fight, no problem. She's a very gentle soul. She's always been a source of compassion and a, a teacher for empathy growing up. She was very artistic. She would collect all these things for all these projects that she'd want to finish. And she never finished a project. She just had tons of shit from stuff that she never finished. So if I got my work ethic from my dad, I got my creativity from my mom. But what my mom also had was this razor-sharp, sarcastic wit. And I'm almost certain that that was a reason behind half of the fights that my parents got in. So I knew right away that when my mom was going to drop this bombshell on my dad, we didn't want to be in the house. We had no idea what was going to happen. The clock was ticking. I knew my dad was going to be at a concert this coming up Saturday. He was going to be gone between 8 and 10 hours. So we had that time to pack up the entire house and get the fuck out of there before he even knew what was going on. And as I'm packing up the rooms that my boys stayed in, it was a room that I grew up in, a room that I slept in as a child. And I remembered having a baseball bat underneath my bed. And I, I slept with it because I wanted to be able to protect my mom and my brothers in case my dad got violent again. And then one night I was woken up around 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. 
the usual sounds of fighting. My dad is screaming and yelling and things are being thrown around the downstairs and my, my mom is sobbing. And I hear a sound that's a little bit different. It's a loud boom. And I could feel the reverberation from that shake all the way up into my bedroom. And I hear my mom scream, Ricky, come help me. So I grab my baseball bat from under my bed and I run to the top of the stairs. And by the time I get there, my dad is jeering at me. He says, yeah, Ricky, go get your baseball bat. Come help your mom. And I'm standing there for a second. And I'm scared and I'm ashamed and I'm embarrassed that I could even do anything about that. And I went back to my bed and I put the baseball bat back underneath and I listened to the rest of their fight. And as I was thinking about that instance, I realized that this is finally the situation where I'm picking up my family and I'm moving them out, I'm getting them out of that situation. So my mom, on the other hand, we've got the first load of truck. It was all of our stuff. It uh, packed up easy. We were there about a year and a half earlier, so that was fine. My mom had two more truckloads full of just books that haven't been opened in 30 years, blankets and quilts that her mom made, and tons of cooking stuff that her grandmother had cooked with, old furniture that looked like it came exactly out of an antique shop, all of this stuff. None of it was really worth anything, but it had tremendous sentimental value to her, and she's panicking, and I'm saying, Mom, I don't know how much time we have left. We can't possibly pack any more stuff, and she's almost crying. She's like, we got to put the stuff in a, your wife's got a car and I've got a car. I'm like, you don't understand, mom. You do not want to be here when dad comes home and finds out that we are all gone. And she says, if I don't get this stuff now, your dad will burn down the house with everything in it. And I knew that was true. My dad had threatened that on more than one occasion, anyone and anything in the house. But I think the overall logic prevailed. I finally got my mom and my wife and kids and they all had left. And as I looked around the empty house, I started to think about how I would feel if I came home to that, not knowing what was going on. And I got a sense of guilt. And I knew that I couldn't leave my dad to come home to that. So I decided to stay behind. Jordan and I are sitting in a car across the street. And I'm going over all the potential scenarios in my head. Would he be sobbing? Would he be crying when he finds out what happened? Would I have to give him a hug? Well, that's highly unlikely because I'd never seen the guy cry in his life. Would he go get some gasoline and try to burn down the house? How would I stop him from doing that? I have no idea. Or would he pull a gun on me? Well, I had a backup plan for that, too. I had a gun tucked into the back of my pants. Shortly thereafter, my dad pulls into the driveway, and we pull in after him. I see my dad get out of the car and go in the house. I follow him into the house. My buddy Jordan, he's my getaway car, hangs out in the door just in case. And as I round the corner into the kitchen where my dad's standing, he's saying, what the fuck is this? And his voice reverberates over the bare walls and the empty cabinets. And I turn around and he's this monolithic statue of of hate and anger. And in my head, I'm just going nuts. I'm like, dad, you fucked up for the last time. We're sick and tired of your shit. You've been cheating on mom. You've been terrifying my wife and my kids. We just can't handle your garbage anymore. If you want to see us again, you got to fix this shit. We're out of here. But what comes out of my mouth is a lot softer. I say, Dad, Mom found out you were cheating. She was scared to tell you. We were scared to tell you. I'm sorry. We have to go. And I see my dad kind of melt before me. He turns into this short, confused, out-of-control, sad person. And he turns to me, and he's barely able to look me in the eye, and he says, I'd like you to leave. And I said, okay. And I turned to walk out. And I realized walking into that house, I was that same scared, vulnerable adolescent that was afraid of his dad. 
And on my way out of this house, I realized that he's just another human being like I am and like my mom is, and, and we fuck shit up all the time. And in that moment, I was able to forgive my father. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Alice in Chains behind me now, and we just heard from Rick Dean, who you can find on Twitter at RDG3PO. Also before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Our final story on this week's episode is so fascinating. Victoria Rocha shared this at our last show in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. We do the show there once a month. She is a storyteller based there. Uh, You can find her on Instagram at Vienna Wits. And here she is now, Victoria Rocha, with a story we call The Star. So I was young as six, seven years old when I would climb into bed with my dad and get underneath this ratty blue blanket that he had my whole life. And I was seeking refuge from, you know, like the boogeyman or the monster in the closet. And I would nestle next to him and sometimes peek over the blanket. And there was a dresser across from the foot of the bed that was covered in pictures of me and my brother, his sister, my Aunt Victoria, all these keepsakes and trinkets, including this little gold uh, Star of David, which is hilarious because we're not even Jewish. Uh, We're actually not a whole lot of things. On my mother's side of the family, my grandmother, Mercedes, she was raised Catholic, had my Aunt Kathy baptized as Catholic, had my grandma, excuse me, my mother baptized as Methodist, which is like diet Catholic. 
uh, have my Uncle Bill baptized as Episcopalian. And so when I asked her in adulthood, like, why? Why would you do this? Why would all three kids uh, have different religions? And this woman looked me dead in the eye with no humor to say, well, one of them's going to make it. <laughs> and that was just my mom's side of the family. On my dad's side of the family, you know, my grandmother, Charlotte, she's raised Catholic. She somehow clearly finds her way to Judaism, where the kids are also somewhat raised in Judaism. And then she actually dies a Pentecostal just way out in left field. And especially being from Las Vegas, she was known for like falling to the casino floor when hitting the slots and being like, thank you, Jesus. Because that's what you do when you're a Pentecostal. It's all Jesus. It's never you. So this is my family's religious background. And um, my dad would use this time, instead of saying like bedtime stories or soft words, the things that protect you from the monsters, he'd like hold me and tell me about his horrendous childhood. <laughs> yeah, so when he was 10, and my Aunt Victoria was eight, and my grandmother was a single mom living in Las Vegas, she was trying to find stability. And she thought she found it in this man named Solomon. And Solomon was raised Jewish, although he didn't have any sort of leadership in the Jewish congregation. But he took on this cult-like figure in my family's life. Uh, so he made the whole family wear stars of David's. He also made the family call him King Solomon, or King for short, which tells you a lot about how he felt about himself. But this was just the tip of the power and manipulation he brought into my family. Uh, he would tell them what they could wear, who they could see, what they could eat. Uh, my dad would tell me these horrific details of King calling up my grandmother on the phone and telling him how to beat the children, uh, telling her how to beat the children, whether it was with a hanger or a wooden spoon or a belt. And then he would sit and listen on the phone to make sure the beatings were being done properly. And then when my Aunt Victoria turned 11, he started to sexually molest her. These are not the things you tell your seven-year-old child. Take a note, parents. <laughs> but despite this, I have to be honest with you, it felt special between us. There was some sort of bonding in it because on the outside, all these people knew my dad as like this really weighty figure in his profession. But behind closed doors, I kind of felt like I was the big girl. I knew my family's secrets. I kind of held this parental position with my own father. So when my grandmother, Charlotte, passed away when I was 15, my dad found in her things a, her giant Star of David. In contrast to my father's star, this thing was humongous. It screamed like, look at me, I'm Jewish. But I think really for King Solomon, it sort of said like, look at me, I own this woman. And my dad gave it to me without a lot of explanation of like what I'm supposed to do with it. So I brought it into adulthood with me. And as I started to you know, grow up and talk to well-adjusted people, like I'm sure you all are in here, and realize like, oh, don't tell your kids about horrible abuse uh, at a young age, and like maybe these things weren't totally normal, I started to question if this star held any good benefit to my life. Or was King somehow having a hold on me as well? And this questioning really came to a head five years ago. My father retired from his job, and suddenly all that like perfect life that he had 
shown to the public that he was trying to build. You know, he, he was a state wrestling champion and he'd gone to Syracuse on a full academic ride. And like I said, he was top notch in his field and he had these two kids. All of a sudden, all of that was stripped away and my dad was left questioning who he was and what he stood for. And he kind of had a face, that childhood, that he never really dealt with. And my life suddenly became phone calls from nurses and doctors and crazy girlfriends and medications and things that I couldn't handle. But I also couldn't be angry at him for his depression. I couldn't be angry at my grandmother Charlotte. I couldn't be angry at King. They were both dead. But I could be angry at that fucking star sitting in my bathroom on the jewelry rack. So, the whole thing culminated with my father needing to have a guardian. And this past October, I stood in a courthouse and was sworn in as his co-guardian, meaning that I was no longer just gonna be the seven-year-old keeper of his secrets, I was going to be the keeper of his mind and body. So two weeks later, I woke up really fucking angry at that star. And I walked in the bathroom and I knew exactly what I was gonna do with it. I was gonna put it in my purse, I was gonna look up on Yelp, some kinda nice jewelry store near me, and drive there and sell it and get it out of my life. So that's what I did. Got my car, drove to the jewelry store, and the first thing I noticed about the guy behind the counter is that he looks exactly like Jimmy Fallon. If Jimmy Fallon had been Armenian. <laughs> he had this perfect Jimmy Fallon face, but that like Armenian tuft of chest hair that sits right here at the top of his shirt. And all these rings on his fingers and a gold chain around his neck. And so I walk up to Armenian Jimmy Fallon and I say, I need to get my grandmother's Star of David appraised. Looks at me, looks at it, pulls down these magnifying goggles, glasses, things takes the star and starts looking at it. And I point out that there is a, a stamp on one of the points that says 18 karat gold. And he just says, we'll see. <laughs> and he's inspecting it closely and he starts to scrape it on some slate and drop drops on the scrape. And he's clearly like looking for chemical reactions that talk about the validity and authenticity of this thing or is it just fool's gold? And when he's done with all of this wizardry, he pulls his goggles back up and he says, it's worth between $150 and $200. And this is just not a sufficient answer for me. So I try to push him. Can you give me an exact amount? And his face is just dark. I can feel the judgment emanating from his body because he has heard me say, this is my grandmother's star. So he says, you shouldn't get rid of this. And I know what he's thinking. He's conjuring up, you know, Holocaust survivors and refugees coming to America. And I, I kind of back off like, yeah, 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 I, I know. I'm, I'm not saying I'm going to get rid of it today. I just need to know the exact amount. Instead of answering my question, he flips the star over and he points out like, uh, these, there used to be something in here because there's these prongs that are like askew in multiple directions. I told him, yeah, you're right. There used to be this purple gem in the back of the star. And he recommends that we clip off the prongs and sand it down, and then I can wear the star again. But what I can't say to him is that what used to be in that star was a purple gem that my grandmother, when she finally disentangled herself from King, 
She had taken pliers to it and ripped the gem out because even though he was physically gone out of her life, she was so afraid that he had this control over her that his power and his essence lived in that gem. So she had to get rid of the gem and she rips it out and throws it away to get King fully out of her life. I can't tell Armenian Jimmy Fallon that. So I just say to him like, I don't wanna wear the star. Can you tell me what it's worth? And he just looks at me, angry. And finally he says, it's worth $200, but you shouldn't get rid of it. And he sets it on the counter and he turns his back on me. And then he starts to walk out of the store. Like he's so upset at me and what I'm doing, he can't even be in the store with me. No back room, out the front door. And I am just filled with shame and guilt. And I grab the star and I shove it in my purse and I start to pursue him because I have to say something. But I don't know what to say because what I can't tell him is that in 1987, my Aunt Victoria committed suicide because she couldn't handle her life anymore and I didn't get to meet the woman whose name I share. I couldn't tell him that although my father's life was perfect on paper, I knew in the darkness that my father hurt, that he felt guilty, that he couldn't save his sister, that he was angry at his mother for not protecting him. I couldn't tell him about the phone call from the nurse as I was flying back across the country to take care of my dad, that my father had a full psychotic break from reality and that he was strapped to the bed and I should brace myself because I won't recognize him. I couldn't tell him that two weeks prior to going into that store, I had just signed papers to take care of my father, that I wasn't just someone who could listen to him, but that I had truly embodied fully the parent that it seemed like I was always gonna become. I couldn't tell him any of that. So I rush outside the front door and I just yell at his back, hey! And he turns to look at me and he waits for me to say something else. And I like, do like a sheepish grin, like, eh. And then I just say like, does anyone ever tell you that you look like Jimmy Fallon? <laughs> and that's all I have, jokes because I need him to smile. I need him to find sympathy for me and silliness for this piece of shit granddaughter and daughter standing before him that can't explain her own hurt. He didn't like my joke. <laughs> he just said, no, and walks off. <laughs> I didn't sell the star that day. I haven't sold the star at all, actually. I, I don't know what to do with it. There is a piece of me that worries that if I sell the star, that I'm giving away a piece of my family that I can never give back, that I have failed, that my seven-year-old self has failed to keep my family's history. Sometimes I tell myself, I'll sell it when my dad passes away. Sometimes I tell myself I'll give it to a child if I ever had one, but that seems kind of along the same fucked upness and should be avoided. But I will say this, I do find a lot of comfort in knowing the value of the star, in putting a monetary price on the abuse and the hurt and the caregiving and the burdens, it's worth $200. Thank you.
all for this week's episode folks this is wussy behind me now and we just heard from victoria rosha who you can find on instagram at vienna wits don't forget you can always find new information about where the next risk live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour and pitch us folks at risk-show.com slash submissions. Also, if you want to learn anything about storytelling, you can find our school at thestorystudio.org. All kinds of training and workshops, including corporate workshops, you can find us at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is uh, who is this? I uh, forget. I forget. Jazz Lounge. Jazz Lounge. Jazz Lounge. Jazz Lounge. Jazz Lounge. Jazz Lounge. Jazz Lounge.